Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra presidential edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber Musical Comedy Podcast, where the host always needs to triple check that he's recording. And speaking of... Uh, yep. Wait, where was I? All right. And speaking of the host, I'm Aaron, and I'm joined as usual to spread a little sunshine with Spencer the Broadway Spy. How's it going? It's going great, Aaron. Nice and sweltering here in New York City. Oh, really? Oh, I'm freezing my bits off here in Melbourne. Like, it's so cold, but not snowing. There's not even that payoff of snow. But anyways, have you seen any good shows lately? Uh, Yes, I just saw Back to the Future. I wholeheartedly recommend it, as well as Alex Edelman's uh, new stand-up hour, which is on Broadway until August 19th, uh, just for us. Really enjoyed both of those. Yeah, awesome. Anything else? in particular you may have seen oh and of course i just saw a wonderful off-broadway show called eisenhower this piece of ground starring tony winner john rubenstein as eisenhower he is incredible oh from angel um you didn't watch that did you that's why there was an awkward silence no i don't watch most of the old things that you talk about i know I think you were only two when it ended. Yeah, but also my favorite television show is The West Wing, so we can't really use that as an excuse. Yeah, you can't use that as an excuse. And I was like walking around singing the Laverne and Shirley theme the other day and Green Acres and all these old theme songs that weren't on TV when I was born, though I watched them in reruns growing up. That's how I know them. Anyway, so this play you saw, Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground. What was the set like? I always love to know about sets. Was there a set? There wasn't a band on stage, was there? Well, there was not. It, um, the theater, theater for St. Clements is, is in a church. So like yep. the, the auditorium itself is kind of cool. Um, but the set, you know, it's a typical, you know, living room. It, it, and at the back of it is a large screen for projections, which okay. I thought was used really, really well. Gave you some more information when he talked about a person, their picture went up which for me, who was not alive during these events, was um, nice because then I can visualize the people better. A um, lot of chairs on the set. There are maybe seven chairs. And for a one-man show, at the beginning, I was like, oh, he's not going to sit in all of those. He does sit in all of the chairs. <laughs> Is that shade? Are you throwing shade at the great John Rubenstein? I'm not. Okay, good. At all. You're lucky. I was just like, oh, that's a lot of chairs for a show with one dude in it. One legend. Exactly. Yes. Anyways. And was it compelling? Was it good? Was it well acted? Was it well written? Was it well directed? It was It was very yeah. compelling. My favorite television show of all time is The West Wing. I've yeah. always been fascinated by presidents and the White House and all those things. Um, and I really, really enjoyed this play. You know, a lot of one man shows recently have been going the 90 minute no intermission route. I really liked that this didn't do that. You know, it, it had an intermission. It was you, you got to sit and think and discuss the work in between it, which I is my favorite part about intermissions. I normally go to a show with a friend, and so you're able to discuss what you've just seen. And I think that that for this was was really really great. Yeah. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the show. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, anyways, guess what? What? We have another legendary diva with you in the Oval Office today, so I better tumble into my morning gloat because we've got magic to do and there's no time at all to get through this extraordinary list of glorious credits amassed into the corner of this guy, so I guess I'll miss the many simple joys and only celebrate the ones we loves on and on, like that kind of woman who ain't getting away with murder. So try and arrest me, officers of Dragnet, Ironside, Hawaii 5 O Mod Squad, Robocop, Matlock, Bones, as in Barnaby, Jones, Closer, Diagnosis, Murder, yes, NCIS, LNO, NYPD, and CSI, so CSI do and say, can you see, as we put our eyes on how uh, this piece of groundbreaking maestro-nomical talent has made amber waves in his race to the windy China beach in an ocean-sized conspiracy of lovely work, so from the wicked beaches of Oz, I Camino waltz a huge Aussie all together now, g'day, and go crazy. Crazy like a fox, as we welcome to the family and torture chamber to this five-time Tim Minear collaborator when it was high tide for a feud with Betty and Joan, so call 911 tomorrow and don't lose your head because neither is an angel. And our guest is a Superman going on new adventures with Lois and Clark, animated adventures with Superman, future adventures with the Legends of Tomorrow, and invisible adventures with Wonder Woman on her flying love boat, plus prescribing to one of 80 or so doctors alongside that other Wonder Woman, RuPaul in AJ and the Queen Queen C-M-E-E-R and Charmed plus House, Dirty, Sexy Money Greg, 21 Grams, The Young and the Restless Brothers and Sisters, Girlfriends and Friends The Last Friends which ended its embryonic journey with twins and an audience of one billion gazillion people. So pivot and get off the plane and into the torture ship Enterprise as this old boy and the young Nightingale voyager across Broadway on a Star Trek with this legit legend who left his legacy with the burly fools of Wonka's chocolate Factory, where the sugar cane mutiny court marshal M. Butterfly has a nice ragtime, plus the children of a lesser god, which won him a Tony Award. Plus, plus today's chosen musical twice. But I have a hunch you can see him until the 20th of August as he turns from counsellor at law to president of the White House, as in Eisenhower, this piece of ground. So Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead excited to battle for the Pentagon Papers with this acting, singing, directing and composing Prince turned King of Broadway. It's the extra extraordinary Sir John Rubenstein. Yay! Welcome to the Torture Chamber. How are you going? Well, I'm exhausted after that. <laughs> Gee, that's amazing. <laughs> that's not even the full thing that he's going out there john oh my god <laughs> i could not fit it wow. all in i am gobsmacked that was really something else congratulations on doing that thank you so much your career is something else goodness gracious me and i'm reading through all these titles and i'm like i have to cut this thing out i have to cut this thing because there's just no time at all and because we've had tim Mania on the show and he sort of helped me in the past as well oh. and i noticed you've worked with him five times now spencer you organized this meeting today with this interview. Did you know this before you sent the Tim Money episode as an example of what our show is? Or was that just an accident? Uh, it was not an accident. I was trying to send episodes that both you and I were on. And so yeah. just that just happened to be one of them. You know, I sent a couple of my favorite episodes and I tried to send some that the two of us did together as examples. So that that one just happened to be one that we did together. So it was accidental is what you're saying. And it just happened to have picked an episode that is somebody that John has worked with on Angel. 
Lewis and Clark at 911. He created that show. What else has he done? Um, oh, there's, there's, there's literally five titles in there that, that are his. Well, good for him for hiring me. What a good man he must be. <laughs> I think he must be a Pippin fan. I'm guessing he's a Pippin fan. Yes, sir. So, wait, wait, did you say that he did Angel? Yes. Oh, yeah, because, you know, I was on a bunch of uh, episodes of Angel. Yeah. <laughs> and my final one, I was a terrible, terrible guy who wanted to kill Angel and everything else. I was, I was a big CEO, horrible man. I had this beautiful uh, assistant. And at one of our board meetings, we're all sitting around a table. And she is sitting there, a, a, you know, a few seats down from me. And suddenly a little blade mm-hmm. comes out of my chair and lops off my head which rolls down through the middle of the table. And one of the executives sitting there has a line written in the script that says, well, I guess he found his corner of the sky. Yes. Then the producer introduced himself to me and said, yep, uh, I've been a Pippin fan. I, I wanted to get that line in there. I said, well, thanks for, you know, killing my character and ending my run on this show. Oh, look, don't be offended, John, because as Tim Mania was on our show and we shit-stirred him about, there is a lot of blood on his hands. You are one of many. But if you were listening closely, you would have noticed I said, and don't lose your head to Murrow because neither is an angel. Oh, look at that. You're amazing. Thank you very much. Well, actually, well, as Tim Money has said on this show, and, and Spencer was there, I'm a, if you will, a distant cousin or a second cousin of the Buffy Angel family, because 10, 12 years ago, I did crossword puzzles. And uh, it was Tim himself that said uh, about a Buffy crossword I had done, you've got to put this online. So I put it online. And within two years time, I actually got published in Dark Horse Comics. Wow. Season eight, the final issue, which was written by Joss. They printed my crossword in there. And as you can see, it's autographed by Adam Baldwin there and Nathan Fillion on the front. So we're we're distant cousins, John. So welcome to my torture chamber. Lovely to meet you at last. Very lovely to meet you. <laughs> Look, you know what? I've probably crossworded your name a hundred times across oh. musical theater crosswords and Buffy crosswords. No doubt your name has popped up so many times. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm a crossword fanatic. I do the New York Times crosswords every day. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine how people sit there and make those up. It's they're such an intricate thing to put together so i admire you for doing it it's a lot of time and focus but most people just use a program where they type in the words they hit enter and it will compile automatically oh really mm-hmm. wow. I, I don't but anyways uh, enough on that we will we'll move on because apparently not apparently you are doing eisenhower this piece of ground at the moment now has it been a smooth term in office so far well uh, i don't know what you what you call smooth uh, yep. yeah we did the show it's a beautiful play mm-hmm. and it's written by a, a playwright who lives in Sacramento, and his name is Richard Hellison, H-E-L-L-E-S-E-N. I, I just, every now and then, I just imagine somebody coming to me and saying, hey, write a two-hour, one-man show monologue for Dwight Eisenhower and make it interesting. And I, and I, I, would, I would shoot myself before I would even attempt to do it. Yep. And he <laughs> did it. He found a way to make Eisenhower walk on stage and from the very beginning, it's an actable thing. It's not a, a history lecture. It's not 
some kind of a just a, a boring trip through history. It's a man dealing with his emotions, with his ego, and then with sort of larger considerations about what goes into a great leader or just greatness as a concept in, in human uh, history. And so it, it, it's very interesting and it's wonderful to act. So a smooth passage, yeah. We opened it in Los Angeles. We got rave reviews. People loved it. It was inspiring. It, it's very relevant to what we're experiencing today politically in this country particularly, but still all over the world too. And so people leave the theater not only having learned a bunch of stuff about Dwight Eisenhower, who is to some degree a sort of forgotten president, People your age, even people my age, who lived through his presidency, sort of, oh yeah, he was, yeah, he was bald. He played golf, and he did a a, a big deal in World War II beforehand. Um, yeah, let's move on. Kennedy came next, and so people leave our show having learned a lot about Eisenhower, but also having, I hope, gained some new perspective on today, and that's to me the most important part about it. I know. Um, well, I haven't seen it, obviously, because as our listeners know, I lament every week I am not in New York. But Spencer has seen it, so I'll, I'll let him take the next question. I'm a huge presidential, not historian, but I don't know. When I was a kid, I just I loved reading about it. I still do. It's just always something that uh, I've loved. And then when I discovered the West Wing when I was a teenager, of course, like loved that as well. And so this show was like a perfect intersection of all of my, you know, favorite things. Uh -huh. And um, it was just, uh, I, I loved it. I sat, I brought my friend and we just, it was, it was fantastic. I, I've sent like three people there since it's, I really, really enjoyed it, but I wanted to, to kind of hear from you what it's like to perform a one man show because First of all, it's got to be a little bit isolating, but also if you screw up, there's no one there to catch you. If you can talk a little bit more about what that is like. Yeah, well, you know, I've had many friends and, and even, you know, many people that I don't know, actors, uh, who have done one-person shows. It's it's a sort of a, a genre, I guess. Uh, the first one I saw was Julie Harris doing Emily Dickinson. The Bell of Amherst was the name of that. Wow. And I saw Ian McKellen doing his uh, Shakespeare uh, thing where he played a bunch of different Shakespeare parts. And, and I always sort of entertained the idea because the main reason being that it's something generally rather simple to travel. Mm -hmm. So you can pick it up and do it one night in one town, another night in another town, or show up someplace and play a week if it's a bigger city. Uh, but it's something that you can do rather than always being, you know, uh, at the mercy of some uh, movie or television studio or thing. You got to audition. You got to get the part. They got to You got to go somewhere and shoot it for a week or two weeks. If it's a movie, it can be two months and three months. But this way you can have your little show and you can book it here and there and you can go and do it. So I always imagined, since I'm a musician, that I would end up doing something where I played the piano mm -hmm. uh, and sang either, you know, stuff from Broadway musicals or, you know, pretending that I'm Jerome Kern or Cole Porter or something. And I would be him and mm -hmm. talk about my life and then sing my songs. But there's so many talented people who do that. And all of the composers and all of those guys have been done and done and done by 
pianists who are so much better than I am and singers who are way better than I am. So I sort of let that go. And I sort of gave up on it over the many years. And suddenly this play showed up in my email sent to me by the director, Peter Ellenstein. And um, I read it and I said, oh, well, this is a possibility. And then I read it out loud for the two of them. And we all three said, yep, we got to do this. This is this is a real play. This isn't just a, you know, a TED talk. It's it's something that has dramatic value to it, as well as being a piece of history. And so I did it. But this was the first one I'd ever done of this kind of, of a one man thing. And to answer your question, it's daunting. It's scary. Uh, part of the joy of being an actor, whether it's in a TV show or a movie or on stage, is teaming up with all the other people. You know, you start your first day of rehearsal and you're in a cast of five or 10 or 60 or more, as was the case in Ragtime. Uh, and you meet everybody and it's a new family and you start slowly working together to put the piece together and it comes up then you perform it for the audiences and you become really close, intimate almost with a whole bunch of people and you love each other and, and you depend on each other. And it's a great, great, great feeling of community and team effort every single night. And that's the same on a movie set too, with the crew and everything. You're all working towards this one little moment that people will sit in their chairs in some movie theater or on their TVs and they'll watch it, bang. But that little thing that happened was the work of maybe 200 people all coming together with their particular crafts and skills. So when you do a one man show, you walk into rehearsal and there's just you. I mean, there's the director, and the writer was there and the stage manager, but nobody to team up with and nobody to hold hands with and nobody to go out to have a drink with, you know, in, in the cast and talk about the play. And no, so it's lonely. It is lonely. It's, it's concentrated. It's good work. It's fulfilling. And this particular play gets the audience very, very involved. They sit there quiet. They drink it all in, and at the end, they have a sort of an explosion of emotion. And that's all because of the, how the play is structured and written. And so it's tremendously fun to do and rewarding. But I still, I walk into that theater, I go into my dressing room. It's just me, and it is, it's lonely, and it's, it's a bit scary sometimes. Also, acting is about reacting. Yeah, <laughs> I have nothing to react to. Yeah, that's it. Uh, does it become a fine line then between acting and speaking to the audience, like doing an, an oratory, if you will? I guess so. Not really, though. I mean, the way it feels to me is I'm always, I'm the character in the play. I'm, in this case, Dwight Eisenhower, and yeah. it's on a particular summer's day in 1962. And he comes into his his sort of, you know, veranda room there overlooking his big backyard with a golf green on it. And he is having a particularly upsetting day, having read something in the New York Times that hurt his feelings, hurt his ego, hurt his sense of himself. And he gets on the phone and he talks about it. And then he turns on a tape recorder and he starts, which was there because he's recording 
for his editor his book about yeah. his presidency. Okay, so yeah. that's why the tape recorder is there. And so he starts recording basically a stream of consciousness talking about this article in the Times that, that has pissed him off. And that leads him into talking about his life. So it feels very organic. It doesn't feel like oratory. Yeah. But for sure, just physically, there are many, many moments in the play where, although in, in whatever reality is there, I'm talking into the microphone of the tape recorder. Yeah. But I don't just sit in one place and lean into the mic. I wander around the whole room. The mic presumably picks it all up. We mm -hmm. both know that uh, microphones in those days, these little teeny plastic things, it would have been pretty echoey and pretty terrible sound. Yeah, but I Ike doesn't care about that. He's just saying what he says. And I'm sure you could understand him. So we hear those old tapes from the Oval Office of Nixon, you know, all those incriminating tapes that finally made him have to resign the presidency. And they sound awful. The quality of the sound is terrible. So, yeah, there are many times where in a sort of almost Shakespearean style soliloquy. Yeah. Although I'm still always recording. I'm still talking into that machine. I do end up facing the audience and sort of talking out like that, revealing my myself, my thoughts, my feelings. And um, yeah, that's a little, It's as you said, it's a fine line. It's a little break with reality. But of course, it makes the play work. It would be stultifying if I never did that. Well, and I thought as well, the projections in the back really added to, to the show a lot for me in terms of context. Yeah, that was a great idea by the director. Again, how do you stage a one-person show, especially if it isn't one where you're changing costumes or changing yeah. characters and you're running around and you're doing all kinds of fun and interesting stuff. You're just some old guy talking. What do you do? And, and of course, uh, that was a great idea by Peter Ellenstein. And Joe Huppert is the man who did all of those projections and, and also the sound in the thing. There's rainstorms and there's some music yeah. and there's different stuff. So every now and then while I'm talking, you see in the background projected who uh, whom I'm talking about, the, 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 my family in the earlier part, and then Joe McCarthy, Douglas MacArthur. You know, there are many, many, many pictures. Yeah. And that helps the audience, I think, a lot. Awesome. Oh, we've got a few more Eisenhower questions later, but uh, we're going to quickly move on to the middle now. The rock star rider question. Now, you are a bit of a rock star. Well, I actually had a rock band for a while. I was a keyboard player for a band called Funzone. F-U-N-Z-O-N-E. Look it up. You can, I think, find it somewhere buried in YouTube. Oh, wow. Funzone. We recorded an album for Polygram Records back in the 1970s, and we rocked. We were good. Oh, wow. Well, if you could pick your ultimate rock star rider, like anything crazy over the top, not water, what would you put in the ultimate rock star rider? Oh, oh, like oh. ultimate. We, we want like a menagerie of animals or something crazy. No, no. I would want an espresso coffee machine in my dressing room hallelujah yes i am so down with that even though it's hot water a good one not just an easy peasy one yeah one yeah. where i could grind the beans and come up with really strong stuff 
Yes. Oh, goodness gracious. Spencer doesn't drink coffee. That's not true. I drink very little coffee. Well, okay. Apparently you do drink coffee, but you're always telling me off about the the amount that I drink, (laughs) which is about five, six cups a day. I'm trying to cut down. I'm trying to cut down. That might be too much. I don't know. A little bit too much. I don't know. Maybe not enough. Let's face it. It's not enough, John. Yeah, maybe not enough. Yeah. Yeah. Not enough coffee. But anyways... We're going to move on to the medal now. And Spencer, you chose the medal album this week. And is this the first time you've chosen a medal album? Yes. It is. Oh, wow. Congratulations. And for the listeners at home, as I mentioned earlier, Spencer booked our extra special guest today, John. He organized this episode, even though I'm hosting. That's another matter. And he picked both the musical and the metal album so we can say congratulations spencer you are officially producer not just a co-producer of this show you are now officially a producer of this episode at least he says well ignoring the 10 episodes of the other show that i produced yeah but i'm talking about you being a producer of this show oh yeah that's yeah after however many 20 something episodes and numerous ones of those being produce a co-producer credits. Now, the point was, yay, congratulations, Spencer. You are officially a producer of Thrash and Treasure. Anyways, you chose Ghost. I feel like I've done 7 million episodes. Anyways, I'm going to read a review because you picked Ghost, a band called Ghost and their album prequel, which I want to know why wasn't that their first one. Anyways, alrighty, I'm not going to read it all because we're running out of time and... Quite frankly, I'm on strike. So when Spencer first decided to ghost me, it wasn't anything new. Well, the album was, but never mind. So I pressed play on the Spotify and the overture started and the barely audible ring-a-ring-a rosy rhyme wasn't as creepy as it could have been if a little louder. Rats then started and its blend of campy hair metal mixed with 90s grunge left me going, ah. But as the album progressed, my attention kept floundering. With rats, my head was bopping, but the rest of the tracks feel drawn from the Chris Martin playbook. Sure, they're moody, often kind of dark, but certainly not metal. So to cut a long story short, a part of this album I appreciated. The campier moments especially lived up to a ghoulish vibe as seen in the band itself, but the more serious moments were more like a pepper's ghost, leaving me cold with unfinished business. Rats. The lower end of two and a half stars. Really? Yeah, I look, it started off, as I mentioned in my review, the camp was really very much in one song. The rest of it was a little bit middling, placebo-ish kind of sounds. I felt a little bit of Coldplay. I didn't really feel the look of the album cover. I didn't feel the look of the band. And I didn't feel anything really metal beyond rats which i did enjoy that song and probably gets most of that two and a half stars that was fun and camp and silly and it also was number one for seven weeks on the um hard rock charts in on the billboards so that's a pretty good effort um i appreciated the instrumental tracks because i always love a good instrumental but it just seemed a bit emo to me i guess the package that you're selling me, and I know, I know you can't judge a book on its cover or an album on its cover. That was the whole point of doing those when I first saw the cover jokes was to point out that you can't judge a book on its cover or an album on its cover. 
but I kind of feel like they've got a strong branding there visually that didn't match up with what was on the album. And so it left me kind of, I don't know, it, it, it left me kind of cold. I, I appreciated the symphonic moments, though, like having strings. That was nice. But not enough. And not enough metal. It wasn't metal. Do you hate me? No, I mean, there's one song on this record that I really, really love. And that's uh, Dance, Dance Macabre. Okay, I, di- I didn't mind that one. But I wasn't, like, rats. I wanted to hear again after hearing it the first time. Because it was just silly and rats. Ah, fun. There was no fun beyond that, I didn't think. Yeah, I mean, Dance Macabre is really the only song that, like, I really, really love on this album. Rats was too metally for me. It's not funny. Whereas the rest of the album wasn't metal enough for me. Yeah, but you also have to remember, I don't like metal. None of us like metal, Spencer. That's why we're doing this show. Yeah, but you like it more than I do. I like fun, campy silliness. Um, the, the members in the band are Tobias Forge, who plays Papa Emeritus. But on this album, he was Cardinal Copia. But the rest of them are the nameless ghouls. So they literally could be anybody. Um, but I thought that was funny, just to have a, a bunch of minions playing that are the nameless ghouls. And he's like the, the evil leader. But that branding didn't come through in this music. Not this album. Maybe on a different album. I don't know. They've clearly got a following Hundreds of thousands, of, hundreds of thousands, oh my god, hundreds of millions of listeners. Plus there's a metal burger joint in Chicago that named a burger after them called the Ghost Burger that had a piece of Jesus and cheeses in it. So it had a piece of, you know, the wafer, the bread that Catholics have at Mass. The body of Christ. It's meant to be the body of Christ. So that's why it has a piece of Jesus in the burger. And it was controversial, but I don't know if they sell it anymore because I looked at their website. Yeah, so they clearly got a following is what I'm saying. that They got a burger named after them. Because they're a Swedish band. But the burger is in Chicago. So why did you pick them? Or just because I liked that song. Oh, just that one song. Oh, we've fallen into that trap before. We hear one song, we think, oh, this band might be cool, and we hear the rest of the album, and it's like, oh my god, no. So you chose it because of the one song. I thought there was maybe a musical, melodic reason for it. Like, they're not lacking in talent or anything, and the disconnect for me was I get given this album that has this really crazy cover with this monster on it. Well, maybe that's the issue, is that you were looking at the album cover. Well, no, the issue was that there just seemed a disconnect between what they're selling me and what they actually are. It felt like a bait and switch, I guess. One of the instrumental songs, Halvetes Fonster. Bless you. Oh, you attempted a joke. Very good. You are moving up in the world, Spencer. Now, Halvetes Fonster, yeah, means hell window, which is a slang term for the side cleavage of medieval dresses. Okay, I thought you would find that interesting. I found it very interesting. How do you not find that interesting? It's literally a word for side cleavage. They're touring the USA in August as well. That's where I am. In USA, yeah. Now, Spencer, what did you think of this album after choosing it? So, I'm going to be honest. I didn't listen to the whole thing until I chose it. Um, And then when I chose it, I really liked it. And? Oh, you're asking for my rating. I'll give it a, a four. No, I thought it was good. I like the band name. You like the band name? It sounds cool. It sounds cool. It was really good. Anyways, um, all right. Well, it looks like the ghost 
has finished its business, it's time for the sequel for an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. With summer about to bring a whole lot of tourists to New York, we thought we better check out what are the hottest tickets on Broadway for this summer season. So for the next few weeks, Spencer the Broadway Spy is going to be diving into the Broadway box office to let us know what's selling like hotcakes. It's Spencer the Broadway Spy. This week's Broadway box office breakdown is the week ending in July 9th. I would like to remind you that this is a holiday week, but also July 4th is a holiday that tourists do not tend to come to New York and the people who live in New York tend to leave. So most of the shows have had down numbers from the week before. But I'm sure next week we will see a rise back again. We have Neil Diamond, A Beautiful Noise, uh, at 55% capacity. I really hope this show can make it through the summer. I really don't know if it will. Um, Their problem is their audience is really uh, on the older side and don't come to night shows. But once they hit September, they do four matinees for night shows. And so... uh, if they can get there, then they'll stay open. Uh, but there's some really great performances in that show. Of course, we have Back to the Future with six previews, $1.2 million gross with 99% capacity. I saw the show last night and loved it. The technical elements are just so, so cool. And of course, you have Goodnight Oscar with Tony Award winner Sean Hayes. Finally, um, making some money with $630,000. They're at 71% capacity. But it's a small cast. They're certainly making money at that point. Some other shows that I think if you'd like to see them, you should really try and catch them pretty soon. Is you have Grey House, which grossed $327,000 at 60% capacity. And of course, you have Life of Pi, which was actually up last week at 87% capacity, I'm assuming due to their closing announcement. And then, of course, some other shows that you should really try and catch is New York, New York, which grossed $630,000 last week at 70% capacity. This show has a $1.2 million running cost per week, which means they lost about $600,000 last week. I don't know how much longer the producers will be doing willing to do that but this show is truly a love letter to the city you should really try and catch it before it says goodbye to the saint james then we have once upon a one more time a britney spears musical with six hundred and sixteen thousand dollars, fifty-one percent capacity their capacity is starting to worry me a little bit it's a lot of fun i think once they're able to get into the school year this is a great show for moms to go on a night out um and for millennials to go to on the night out so i i just really hope this show is able to um get to where it needs of course we have some like it hot with seven hundred ninety-six thousand dollars, 71 percent capacity i don't know the show's running cost i assume it's more than this um but it's a really great show and i i'm sad to uh see it at these numbers of course we also have a new show the Cottage, directed by Jason Alexander, made grossing $117,000 last week with three previews. They're at 85% capacity. I'm seeing it in the next couple of weeks. I'm very excited. It has an all-star cast of Broadway legends and some newcomers, and it's supposed to be really, really funny, of course, with direction by Jason Alexander of Seinfeld fame. Then some shows that 
are doing really well. We have, of course, MJ, which has been doing fantastically ever since it opened in December of 2022. We have with $1.5 million, 94% capacity. You can see most of these capacities went down last week. That's just because no one wants to be here for the 4th of July. They're going to the Hamptons and tourists aren't coming here because they assume that it's going to be chaos, which it was. Um, Then some other shows that I'm really excited about that are coming soon is we have the new Jaws play, A Shark is Broken, starring Alex Brightman, Ian Shaw, and Colin Donnell. And we'll start to see numbers for that in about three weeks. And then, of course, we have in the upcoming weeks, we have El Mago Pop, which is a one-week run of a illusionist and magic show at the Barrymore. So I'm excited to see what the numbers for that are as well. And that was this week's box office breakdown. And we're back with Fresh and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Spencer the Broadway Spy, and we are joined by Tony Award winner John Rubenstein. And I am saying that right. Yes, thank you for saying it right. People very often mispronounce it, but uh, no, you got it right. Okay, that's all right. Because there is the young Frankenstein joke of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. And so I always just make sure just to, to clarify. And one thing I found interesting in your resume was your experiences composing TV themes. But you did China Beach. I remember China Beach. I was maybe three or four, but I remember that show. Excellent show, wasn't it? Yeah. I don't remember if it was good or not, but I remember it. Oh, yeah, it was. It was very, very good. Yeah. And were you in it? Did I... I should know that. No, I was never in it. No, I only wrote the, the music. No, I didn't think I saw that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought that was really cool because we had um, David Newman on recently, film composer, like legendary, the House of Newman. One of the great Newman family. Of the Newman family, that's it. Like composers is something like, especially film and, and TV composers is something that I'm big on myself. I have great memories of, of Melbourne and Adelaide and Perth and all those places. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I'm in Melbourne. I'm in Melbourne, so... I was there in 1964. Oh, no, that was 23 years before I was born. (laughs) My parents weren't even married then. My father was a pianist, and he was giving concerts all over Australia and New Zealand. And we were staying in a hotel in Sydney, and just at that same moment, the Beatles, who were just beginning their life, were touring Australia as well. And they were a huge worldwide sensation, and they happened to be staying in a hotel across the street from our hotel oh no the crowd and the crowd the crowd stood on our side of the street looking up at their hotel screaming john and paul and blah blah blah, you know and then a bunch of conservatory students from the music school were mad at the beatles fans because arthur rubenstein was in town and so they lined up on the other side of the street on the beatles hotel side with signs saying (laughs) rubenstein rubenstein we like classical music. And they sort of shouted at each other and Time Magazine took a picture of it and it was sort of featured as this funny war between Beatles fans and Arthur Rubenstein fans. Oh, that, wow. was a, that was a funny memory of Sydney. <laughs> I, I swear, to, my mum has told me a story about being in a crowd when the Beatles came to Australia. Oh. I don't know if that was in Melbourne or Sydney, if she went up to Sydney for it, but my mum possibly could have been outside the hotel. Might have been. As one of those screaming fans. <laughs> so who knows? Goodness gracious me. I'll have to ask her about that. But anyways. No, no okay. So I found out from my mum what it was. When they were in Melbourne, they were staying at the Southern Cross Hotel. 
she was working across the road from that hotel and had to also put up with the crowds outside screaming after them. Whilst it wasn't what I thought it was, like the memory I thought it was, I actually thought it was funny that her story paralleled John's in that same way of being stuck across the road from the Beatles with a huge crowd in between them. But anyways... We'll move on to the musical now, and this week we came of age with Pippin. So with the iconic original Broadway Pippin holding court, Spencer will quickly read his review. We'll see what he thought of this beloved musical, and it is no pressure at all, Spencer. Remember, we have John sitting right here in front of you, watching you, listening. I'm just going to switch tabs from Zoom so I don't have to stare right at him as I'm reading it. (laughs) It's a torture chamber. But yeah, this was my first exposure to Pippin. I had heard the first song. Song, uh, like once or twice and then funnily enough if you watch season two of schmigadoon i heard a parody of it so like I, this is my first time listening to the album the whole way through or doing anything to do with this show i knew that patina miller was in the revival and that's really all i kind of knew about the show other than you know it was stephen schwartz's second big hit you know and i, I really really love this show I've loved Steven Swartz's style for years, and this just like was the perfect version of that for me. To me, it felt very experimental and, uh, you know, the circus stuff, very interesting story that I'd love to see someday on stage. But, you know, with this, you know, cast and these songs, it's just something unlike other things that I have ever heard. I lost my spot in my review. There we go. Oh, my favorite song uh, in the show was... The second song, Corner of the Sky, sung by the man himself, um, which was interesting because it was kind of, um, you know, ballady. And that's not normally my favorite uh, parts of shows. Sometimes I feel like they're a little snoozy or there's a couple too many of them. But I really, really loved that one. Um, You know, Stephen Schwartz writes great ballads um, and to me, he is one of those composers who has the perfect ratio of ballad to not ballad. There are some composers who do too many and some who do too few. And I just thought that this show was like the perfect version of that. Um, the finale of this show was like a very, it felt very like Broadway finale to me. Um, and I really it's just like, oh, this is, you know, what I think of when I think of just like a really great finale. And so I really, really enjoyed listening to this album and would love to see a production of it whenever it comes through New York again or, um, you know, regionally. Re- I didn't say that word correctly. Regionally. There we go. <laughs> I'm shocked. I actually didn't expect you to like it. Even with John here, I thought this would be too 70s for you because it is very weird. Let's face it. And it's not really a... When it's a linear, when I said to you before, it's like from start to finish, but it's not like the traditional Broadway musicals that people were getting at the time. So was it polarizing for audiences? Because it was quite strange when it came out compared to what was what was there. Polarizing. I don't know if I would use that word. No. Yeah. No. Um, it appealed. It appealed to people yeah. on, a, on a very basic level. When we opened it in New York, the critics did not like it very much. Yeah. It got sort of middling reviews. They loved the work of Bob Fosse, who was the director and choreographer. He won two Tony Awards for direction and choreography. They loved Ben Vereen, my co-star, who was amazing as the leading player. 
who won the Tony, Best Actor in a Musical. Everybody loved Irene Ryan, who was the uh, my grandmother in the play. And she had been granny on the Beverly Hillbillies on television for many, many years before that. Of course. Yes, that's where I knew the name. So people loved seeing her live for the first time, doing her big numbers. She was great. She stopped the show every night. The beautiful Jill Clayburgh played the widow with whom Pippin falls in love. And she was wonderful and became my lifelong friend, whom I miss to this day. And the great Eric Berry was the king. So the people loved the cast. They loved the show. They liked the music, not the critics. The critics uh, were middling on the, the book, the, the music, certainly on me. No, nobody, nobody liked my performance very much. Oh, really? What? And Bob Fosse and his work and the beautiful sets by Tony Walton and the lighting by Jules Fisher and the costumes by Patricia Ziprat, they all won Tonys. And, and that was sort of the big thing about Pippin. But then Bob Fosse said, hey, wait a minute. The audiences are loving this show. The critics sort of gave it a half-assed kind of review. So let's do something that's never been done before. Let's make a television commercial for our show that had never been done now it's constant for every show but it never had been done so he got ben vereen and two of the lady dancers in the company pam souza and candy brown and they had a little moment in the play that, where they danced just the three of them no words no plot just a special little fossey ish kind of dance and he filmed that from many different angles very artistically because he was a great film director and um they issued that. They just played it. You heard the music. You saw them dancing. And at the end, the announcer said, you've just seen 60 seconds of the new musical Pippin. If you want to see the other hour and 45 minutes, come to the Imperial Theater. <laughs> and that sold the tickets. And we became the biggest hit. And we ran for over five years. Oh, wow. And Pippin is okay. done in perpetuity for the last half century in every school, high school, college, everywhere. And it was finally revived in 2013 by Diane Paulus, who had a completely different take on it than mm -hmm. Fosse did, which was the circus, which you said you liked. The first one wasn't circus at all. It was Commedia dell'arte. It was a whole different kind of yep. background. But basically, it's the same show, and it's adaptable because it is, as you said, weird. Yep. <laughs> and I got to play um, Charlemagne. I got to play my own father, Pippin's father, mm -hmm. in the revival. <laughs> So I toured that all over the country and uh, to Japan and to Amsterdam, too. So, wow. yeah, I love that show. Oh, wonderful. Um, it's funny. As an 18-year-old, I didn't relate to the line, why do I feel I don't fit in anywhere I go? Mm -hmm. But as a 38-year-old, I totally relate to that line. <laughs> um, one person at your performance inspired was Craig Bioko, who was a 13-year-old. His family was him, his mum and dad, actually it would have been his mum and his stepbrother, I guess. Cut that out. Yeah. Okay. So they were in the city. They were going to the theater to see this Pippin. Craig wanted to stay in the car, but they said, no, you've got to come. And that's part of the reason why he's an actor today. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, it was pretty exciting. It was, a, it, you know, I didn't miss shows. I'm, I'm try, I try to be very, very loyal and never, you know, if I don't feel well, I do the show anyway. But finally, there was a time that first year of Pippin, I guess about 10 months in, where I finally I had some sort of whooping cough. I could not show up on stage without coughing. So I didn't do the show, but I didn't feel terrible. So I went to see it standing in the back for the first time. 
And it blew me away. And I'd been doing it for months and months and months. But when you're on the stage, you just don't see it that way. And you're working hard and you're doing what you need to do. So standing in the back and looking at it, I get why so many people come up to me still now and say, Pippin, changed my life, whatever, made me want to be an actor, made me this, that. So, um, yeah, I get it. Yeah. It had a lot of hits, like the Jackson 5, Michael Jackson recorded hits from this song. Like, the, the, the this was back in a time when musicals could create hits that were on the radio, and we're just not there yeah. anymore. It's so well, that sad. was a funny story. When we were opening, about to open in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center, which was our out-of-town tryout before coming to Broadway, the producer lost a bunch of money. Not lost like he misplaced it, but one of the backers that had promised a certain amount of money suddenly reneged and said, no, I, I can't wow. do it. And so it looked like the whole thing was going to collapse. And how, I don't know, but somehow... Stuart Ostro, the producer, got Motown Records to contribute that amount of money and allow our show to go on. And the agreement was if they put that money in, they got the rights to the cast album, which they never did. They didn't record Broadway cast yeah. albums. So they did. And I always brag to say that I am a Motown recording artist. You are. Because I certainly am. But that's why there was a direct line to Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5, and, and they recorded a bunch of our songs. Oh, wow. I had no idea about any of that. So I'm glad I brought that up. Well, to go to transition a little bit to ask a question that I forgot to ask before, this is a Stephen Schwartz musical, and then later you started Wicked in Los Angeles. Yeah. What was the experience of that show like versus, you know, a show like this? Well, that's a sort of an amazing show. That production that we had in, in Los Angeles was tremendous. Uh, uh, we had Eden Espinosa as Elphaba. We had right. Megan Hilty as, as uh, Glinda uh, and many other great people in the cast. I was the wizard, which is not a huge or, you know, uh, uh, terribly taxing part. But I loved it. I loved going down there every day. And the audiences went wild over that show. I had seen it on Broadway, and I, I had liked it, but it didn't, it didn't kill me until I saw our group do it. And that's maybe a little bit, you know, I don't know, uh, Bias, yep. wrong of me to say. <laughs> no. But I thought that our two leading ladies were the best you could possibly get and made that show, brought it up about 20% from what it had been in New York. And it's still running here. <laughs> it's just, you know, down the street from where I'm working. Yeah. Uh, it'll never close. It'll be one of those shows. And mm -hmm. it's and it's an amazing piece of work. It really is. Uh, listening to it for two years, as I did, sitting in my dressing room, uh, Stephen is just one of those rare genius uh, uh, composer lyricists who has a great dramatic flair and knows how to tell a story with music and words. He's yeah. just amazing yes anyways it looks like the morning glow has glowing glowing gone to an outbreak g'day listeners aaron here while you're topping up your coffees did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time go to www 
thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge. Though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish. So let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbire Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. 
Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose, she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School Auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! We're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Spencer, and we are joined by the remarkable Mr. John Rubenstein. And I am so thrilled, honestly, to have you on my show. But anyways, before we get back onto Eisenhower, I'm curious about something. As I mentioned, you were part of the final episode of Friends. A groundbreak, well, not groundbreak, but just a, a still, I like, right now I get goosebumps thinking about it. I watched it earlier today and cried for the 10th time watching that same bloody episode. Was there a noticeable excitement? There must have been a noticeable excitement or even a sadness in the air. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, it was tremendous. I, I was, you know, as you saw, I had a very, very little yep. part in it. Important. I played a gynecologist, an OBGYN doctor who delivered the twins at the near the end. Monica and, yes, Monica and Chandler's twins, like small, but very important. Yeah. So. But I was there for, for uh, it was a two-parter. So I was there pretty much for two weeks. Yep. And the... You know that was a show that they um, that they recorded live with an audience, mm -hmm. and you know you, you still stopped and did something over again if you had to, but the audience was always there. Yeah. And they had done the show for how many years was it? That was the tenth year. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. And so the audiences were generally people who just were there, and they lined up and they mm -hmm. got tickets and they watched the show. But that was the final episode after all those years. So the the audience were many people of you know the actors and the and the creators family and dear friends plus some I'm sure just total fans of the show. So there was a sort of a I don't know how to describe it. It was sort of hysterical. Yep. There was a a wildness about the emotions in the room, and then the actors themselves. Mm -hmm. They, I talked before about being a team when you do shows together. Mm -hmm. They certainly had that, not just the, the actors that we all recognize, but the crew and all the people backstage, the makeup people and the hair people and the costume people and everybody else, all of the producers and the associate producers, the writers and the everybody. They were a, a tremendous close-knit family. So for them bidding goodbye to this gigantic piece of work that they'd all been working together on for so long was hugely emotional. And there were a couple of times, I remember once, all those uh, actresses, the three of them, right, they sat down on the couch in that uh, that set that was the, whatever that was, it was a bar or sort of a restaurant. Uh, Central Perk. Yeah. And they sat on that couch and one of them said, oh my God, this is the last time we're ever going to be on this set and on this couch. And they all three started to cry and they ruined their makeup. <laughs> and so they had to stop the show and they all three had to go to the makeup room and have their makeup redone because they all had big tears and mascara running down their cheeks. And it took a long time <laughs> because the makeup is always very, very... Uh, meticulous on those shows so we were all standing around just waiting for them to come back and pull themselves together so that they could get through that final show and then there were moments where i mean in my little scene when i pulled out that second baby because mm -hmm. nobody was expecting it yeah. right it was supposed to be just the baby and then suddenly it was twins yeah. the audience went nuts they were screaming and yelling you wouldn't get that on just a normal episode of a show no. but that day it caused and the other thing was weird i remember the first you rehearse those shows sort of like a stage play you the first day of work everybody shows up and you read it at the table all together and the writers listen and the producers and director and they all oh yeah that joke didn't work and this scene is too long and blah 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 and they work on it and they start editing and fixing it so we all read the thing and then it was time to go home while they were going to do their editing work. And at the door to the soundstage, a guard, a very big guard, said, excuse me, sir. I said, yeah? 
can I look in your bag, please? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he looked in my bag and he pulled out my script. He said, I'm sorry, you can't take this off the soundstage with you. Yeah. I said, well, you, I, I'm one of the actors. I'm in the show. I play the doctor at the end there. Uh, this is my script. I have to, you know, like work on it and learn my life. No, sir, you do not take a script off this set. I said, oh, all right. And I handed it to him as though it were, I don't know, 10 pounds of, of illegal drugs or, or an AK-47 or something. <laughs> and I was not allowed to take my script home. Yeah. So, so precious and secret were the immortal words of the script of Friends. I thought that was very funny. Yeah, no, that does not surprise me at all. Uh, anyways, I'll throw it to Spencer now because he's got some questions about Eisenhower. Yeah, so... Uh... How much research do you do before you play a real life person like this? And, you know, you were alive during his term. So did your opinion of him at the time influence anything in your performance? I can't say that it did. No, I was a I was 15 in the year of this play, 1962. I had lived through his presidency from being a little boy into being, you know, a middle aged teenager of 15. But I didn't pay much attention. You know, I was involved in school. I was doing plays. I was working at a, at a difficult school and trying to get good grades. And, you know, yeah, I read the papers. I do remember the whole thing about Little Rock and, and the, you know, the black kids who were not allowed by the Arkansas National Guard to go to school and Brown versus the Board of Education and all those huge civil rights moments. I do remember very, very well. And um, I remember the Suez Canal big thing that we don't actually bring up in our play. And I was aware of, I, I met him myself when I was something like nine or 10 years old in the White oh, House wow. with, with my parents. Um, but, you know, I shook his hand and said, well, nice to meet you, little fella, something like that. And so that was it. It wasn't a big conversation that we had. Um, but no, I did not really have a very, very, concentrated or detailed view, knowledge, or opinion about Eisenhower, other than that he was a good guy, good guy. And that's what everybody sort of thinks about him. Franklin Roosevelt before him and Harry Truman, they're, are they're known a little bit better because of the huge things they did. Eisenhower is known for D-Day and for being the great general in the European war, defeated Hitler. That's huge about him. Um, nobody remembers that he was president of Columbia University, that he was the first commander of NATO, put all those European countries together to work for peace instead of war. Nobody knows that. And then he was president for two terms and gave way to John Kennedy. And I, at age 15, that was my political awakening. Oh, boy, Kennedy. Mm -hmm. A new era. Everything's going to be different from now on. Whatever it was before, I didn't live through the world wars. So the man who ended and sort of defeated everybody in World War II and Truman, who very, very controversially bombed Japan to smithereens to end the Japanese part of that war, uh, which was always a sort of a terrible blot on our history and remains so. Um, that was then. And Kennedy was now. And then when he was assassinated, um, that broke. And 
Things have remained more or less broken since that day in, uh, you know, when Kennedy was killed. So, so no, to answer your question of a half hour ago, uh, I didn't do a lot of research about Eisenhower. And when I read this play, I, like our audiences do now, learned all of these things. I read Susan Eisenhower's book, uh, his granddaughter, Susan, um, which is called How Ike Led. And it's a fascinating book because it talks about his big, difficult decisions that he was confronted with as president and as general, what he had to deal with and how he made his choices and the good ones and the bad ones. And it's also written with a tremendous amount of insight because she was there. She was a little girl running around and riding her horses on those golf greens. And so she knew him personally very well. So that's the only book I read. I, I'm, you know, going to read a lot more about Eisenhower, but I had to learn these lines and get my butt on stage. So, uh, no, I didn't spend a lot of time in the library. It's interesting what you said about political awakening, because I remember for me, you know, I was I was six when Obama was elected. Oh, God, Father Spencer. And then I remember the first time I was able to vote was in 2020. And so very much, you know, that political awakening, that was what it was. And so yeah. one of the most powerful parts of the play for me was how you talked about legacy and the framing of those ranking lists, which was why he was so aggravated. Is legacy something that you as an actor and as a person think about often? Legacy, like how will I be remembered? You mean that kind of thing? Yeah. No, never. I've looked through your career, John, the legacy you have got. Oh, my goodness gracious me with TV th themes and acting and, and original Broadway. Sorry, I'm flabbergasted that. Yes. Well, I've done I've done a lot of stuff. Yes. <laughs> I was very lucky to know around age 12 or 13 that I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. I knew that. A lot of people, I mean, I've raised five kids. Not all of them knew very young what they wanted to be, to do, to make of their lives. And although that's great because you can, you know, you can, you can reinvent, I can reinvent myself today and become yeah. a carpenter if I, if I <laughs> could. Yeah. You know, you, you're never stuck with your earliest choices. Mm -hmm. But still, I knew what I wanted to be and I devoted myself and I poured myself into it. And I started working professionally when I was just barely 18 and have been making a living ever since in yeah. this business, either as a composer or a director or an actor and very much so as a teacher recently. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, I feel just lucky, 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 lucky yeah. to have been able to do it this long and to still be doing it tonight i've got a show at seven o'clock mm. i can't wait to get out there and do it and mm. i feel so so lucky that's really what it is um i don't think about my legacy every now and then it occurs to me that yeah yeah you know uh, 50 years ago i did a musical on broadway called pippin mm -hmm. and i was so fortunate that was my first broadway show and i got to play pippin in it and it turned into a big hit. And uh, so the first line on my obit, if that were tomorrow or if that were in 20 more years, it'll be, oh, he was Pippin, you know. Yeah. So I guess <laughs> that's going to be my legacy. And I'll 
be curious what they say second, third, fourth, and fifth. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You just mentioned you've got five kids, and one of them is actor Michael Weston. Yeah. Now, do you remember what Michael's first film was called? Oh, boy. I remember watching it Yeah. Uh, in a screening room and being bowled over by, to use a sort of a industry term, his screen presence. Mm-hmm. He has the very light blue eyes of his mother. I just remember those eyes. I, I looked at him. It was a close-up early on in the film, and I said, oh, my gosh. He's got it. He can do this. But the name of the film, I do not, I do not remember. Yeah. Um, oh, it might not have been his first film there. Oh, well. But just, I, I'm just quickly checking that um, as quickly as I can. This was his first. Because if we look over my shoulder, John, he was also in a movie called Coyote Ugly. Oh, yeah. No, Coyote Ugly came quite a bit later. Okay. Oh, that's right. It was first on his IMDb. I know I'm Debbie on Wikipedia and I'm like, I have that poster. I have that poster. I can put it up because <laughs> I always try to match the poster with the guest. Yeah. But once, only once have we had a bingo. Oh, my. God. Only once. And and this is an almost bingo, an almost bingo. So we almost got there. But Well, good for you. Yeah, yeah. He's a wonderful actor and he's played a lot of different roles and parts and still does. Yeah. He's also writing now. Yeah. Um, he's writing screenplays. He's producing. So yeah, he got into the business and he's he's marching forward. Yep, taking after, taking after you very much. Just back on Eisenhower, in terms of acting, which this piece of ground is a, a one-man play, so it is just you doing it. Is there any, or have you developed any sort of key signatures in your acting style or even in directing, I guess, uh, over the years that audiences may be able to look out for that when someone sits down in a John Rubenstein show, they know that's what they're getting? No, I would say no, I don't. I try to be truthful. Yeah. And even when playing crazy characters, I played crazy people. You know, I remember RoboCop just happens to jump to my mind. It was a series, a television series based on the on the movies. And I played a madman. I played several. And um, the RoboCop one was, you know, obviously cartoonish and futuristic and crazy. Yeah. But I tried to make him a guy who meant what he said, who was real. That's the term that I use when I direct younger actors or when I teach mean what you say yeah you know whatever technique it doesn't you know, i don't abide by any kind of famous style of teaching acting or anything like that your process and people use those words very seriously and mm-hmm. profound oh well the process <laughs> the work you know i don't yeah. i just try to mean what i say and and if i'm saying i'm gonna take over the world then i have to mean that yeah <laughs> i have to be the guy who actually thinks there's a chance of my doing that. And if I'm playing some, you know, some real, more real person in his daily life, I try to inhabit it in such a way that it's that it is believable. Yeah. And that that's it. But that's not a signature. That's pretty much what every actor tries to do in his or her own different uh, way. We, we hope they do. Let's just say that. We hope they do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can't pretend I've always... Yeah. <laughs> been convincing with what I've done, but that's, that's at least my 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 aim. 
Yeah. Now, during the week, I listened to a gripping piece of theatre that you had performed in, Through Roses. Oh. Uh, for our listeners, it was a play about a Jewish violinist in a concentration camp. I, I didn't see any visuals, but I do have to ask, and you're talking about the truth in, in the part and stuff like that. Did you learn to play the violin for the part? Was that you playing on it? <laughs> no. No, okay, you're no. acting it. Yeah. <laughs> Thought I should ask, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah. No. Thank you so much. Well, it was fun talking to you guys, I have to say. Thanks so much. Such a privilege. And as a member of the Buffy family, it was. <laughs> it really is such an honour to have an, another guest. I think last week's episode with W. Earl Brown, I think he was in Angel. He's done another 200 shows and movies. He was in Deadwood and something about Mary. He was in Scream. Who was he in Deadwood? Oh, I can't remember. I loved that show. I can't remember. He was... Oh, I'll look him up. One of the main people. Uh-huh. Dan Doherty. I don't know. I didn't watch it. And he was in the movie. He was in the movie. Um, But yeah. So anyway, so just, just quickly, where can people find you on the social media? Or are you not on the social I don't do yeah. social media. No, I sort of try to stay to myself because it, it's sort of an overwhelming tidal wave of stuff that you then have to spend an enormous amount of time every day dealing with. Yes. I love to talk and deal with my fans. After a show, if they're there, I always sign everything and I talk to them and I'll answer any of their questions. Yeah. But the social media thing, you're opening the doors to a lot of ferocious wind that you may not want to have blow your hat off. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Yes, no, I, I envy you. <laughs> something, sh- something shocking. Uh, and if you're ever in Melbourne, I am going to hit you up to sign my Buffy comic because I'm anyone that I ever meet okay. that is part of the mutant enemy family. I want them just because it's my work. I don't collect autographs, but this is my yeah. work. So, well, I'm a crossword fanatic. So send me some of you. Oh, send them through Brett. I make musical th- or used to make musical theater crosswords. So it's like all theater, ballet, opera, oh, plays, stuff like that. As I say, your name or Pippin, stuff like that is probably in it a thousand times. <laughs> That's really funny. Oh, goodness gracious me. But anyways, we'll let you go. We won't keep you any longer because I'll get in trouble with the PR. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, John. It was really a pleasure to to talk to you and to, to see your show. Thank you both. It really, I enjoyed it so much. Good luck with everything. Anyways, a huge, huge, huge thank you to John Rubenstein for joining us for this amazing episode. We had a perfect trilogy of episodes this month, and I am utterly pleased. Anyways, a huge thank you as well to Brett for helping us with this interview. I hope we lived up to it, because working with PR companies is always scary, because, you know, we're thrush and treasure. We're not the Broadway Podcast Network. We are literally a metal show, so you know there's going to be a little bit of rock and roll going on here so in awe that anyone wants to come on this show let alone people that have inspired us all for so long especially inspired our past guests what and again sorry to craig i didn't mean to tell john about that that was your thing to tell not mine please don't hate me uh anyways you can find us at thrush and treasure or on instagram at thrush and treasure podcast we're also available patreon and youtube at Blooming Theatricals. We're going to take a couple of weeks off because, quite frankly, I need it. We produce these episodes, these three episodes, quite quickly, and it's very, very taxing. So we've also got to focus on Spencer's and the EGOT Goes To podcast, which you can find on the Bloop Network across all podcasts. 
Now, if you're in the Utah area, be sure to check out Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where you can see Mr. J-Wags playing Willy Wonka. He is truly an amazing performer. He is so funny, so talented. Do not miss him playing everyone's favorite creepy uncle, Timothée Chalahou, really. Mr. J-Wags is where it's at on the Willy Wonka front. Anyways, if you're in New York City, be sure to grab tickets to Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground, which is playing at the Theatre at St. Clement's in New York City. It's an off-Broadway theatre in a church, just like we have Chapel of Chapel here in Melbourne. And past guest friend of the show, our fairy goddess mama, Alison Fraser, has played there a couple of times recently in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Anyways, I'm pretty certain that's everything I meant to say at the end of this show. So... To you at home thank you so so much for listening you take care look after yourselves power to the strikers in hollywood and we shall see you next time for our 100th episode Uru. thank you get some sleep i've still got episodes to edit so oh, oh you gotta work still yeah. thanks so much like, like, so-